0: and welcome back to the Wheel Talk podcast. My name is Abby Mickey. We are back this week to talk about, well, we were just going to answer some questions again, but there was actually quite a lot that happened over the weekend. So we'll start with the news, then dive into some listener questions. Before we get to that, I am joined by, as always, the lovely
1: Gracie Elvin. Hey, hey. I was I had fun last <laughs> week doing the questions, not just talking about racing. So Can to do a little bit more
0: it was super fun i think people should always ask us questions that have nothing to do with cycling
1: yeah more (laughs) of those for sure
0: or like cycling adjacent
2: (laughs) (laughs) lauren rowney hello hello good morning everyone from very warm and sunny belgium
1: (laughs) can't tell if there's irony in your voice sarcasm or not (laughs) No, it actually is genuinely really, really beautiful. So not complain. Oh, that's good. I'm glad.
0: <laughs> I'm in I'm in Latvia now, and it's like I mean, amazing. I love it here. But we were in Finland over the weekend, and I highly recommend Finland to anyone who is trying to plan some kind of trip. Mm. It was amazing. Finland gravel should be on everyone's
1: list next next year. Give Can you give us like tips? a really quick summary of that weekend? I think. I'm keen to know. I'm sure yeah. the listeners are. Yeah, it was super cool. So
0: we there was a bunch of different like shakeout rides as there usually are with these with these um gravel uh events. There was like I think four rides <laughs> in the days before um and the The main star of the show, uh, (laughs) (laughs) this F1 driver who I've never heard of. Yeah, Toms. Um, Yeah, Valtteri he, him and Tiffany Cromwell, his partner, who obviously you guys both know, being Australian and um, having, I don't know, had been in cycling. She's pretty well known. uh, They did a bunch of the rides as well. And there was like a really cool... um, the day before the race, there was like the sign-in and everything, but they also had a pro panel with all the pros that were there. That was pretty cool because it wasn't like your standard questions. They did like a uh, trivia challenge, and then they did like a they did a chugging competition with like energy drinks and cans, which was hilarious. <laughs> um, so it was cool it was really fun really laid back there was a lot of really cool brands there were that were there canyon was a big sponsor of the event as was strava so they had like this big canyon tent with a bunch of canyon people hovering around and there was a strava uh scavenger hunt going on the two days before mm-hmm. and if you won the sca- scavenger hunt you get vip passes to a stage of the tour de france whoa it was pretty cool that's a good price yeah that's a really good prize. (laughs) I was like, I think I should do it. (laughs) Uh, If I hadn't had a sick baby, I definitely probably would have, like, (laughs) ran around with her in a backpack trying to do it myself. Um, And then the day of the race was super cool. I mean, like, it's the first gravel event I've ever been to. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that there are... I've always been, like, a little bit of a gravel hater. And I still don't like to ride gravel. Like, this is my... (laughs) This is my most controversial take, of which I have many, is that I just do not like to ride gravel. <laughs> like, if I'm going to ride dirt, I want to ride a mountain bike. If I'm going to ride on a road-like surface, I want it to be smooth. Those are That's just how I feel. And I'm really sorry. It, it doesn't say anything about people who like gravel. I like totally respect people who like gravel. And I also understand that it's privilege because a lot of people don't live in places with really good mountain biking and really good road riding. Mm-hmm. So I totally get that. And I acknowledge that but (laughs) I personally (laughs) do not enjoy riding gravel. Um, but it was really cool. Like there was a lot of people that were there. There was a lot of Latvians that came up because it's like really close by, obviously like just a, just a ferry ride away. And, um, the race was really good. It was super fast. Uh, Tiff won by like eight minutes and then Heidi Franz was second for the women. Wow. And for Tom's, he said it was like, it, it was super hard and it was really, really fast um and he he did end up winning which was cool and he got what is probably his favorite prize that he's ever gotten ever in his life like i can't put words to how excited he is did he get
2: like a ton of potatoes <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> better <laughs> he got one of botas's
1: helmets what? oh wow helmets. no way yeah. that is a cool prize <laughs>
0: Yeah, he 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 like immediately put it on and then <laughs> so wore cool. during the after party. <laughs> but, but the after party was awesome. It was like on the harbor. So it was like r- really beautiful with like boats and stuff like that. And there was a sauna in classic like um, Scandinavian slash Eastern European culture. Saunas are a huge thing. So there was like a sauna and there was like wood fire hot tubs set up and there were food trucks and it was really, really cool. So I feel like As a whole, as my first gravel event, I'm like totally sold on the spirit of gravel.
2: (laughs) But now Abby, you're gonna expect like every gravel event has to be of like this standard. And when probably a bit spoiled.
1: Yeah, exactly. When
2: (laughs) when you know that that Tiff Cromwell is one of the organizers behind something, it's gonna be pretty good.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, for
3: sure. Yeah. (laughs) So
0: Yeah, and I mean you could tell like there were multiple things that had Tiff's Uh, fingerprints Mm -hmm. on it like there was like a lot of stuff had to do with their coffee shop that they have in Lakti, the the town where the race was Um, there was like really good coffee all the time and um, they had these like really amazing uh like hawaiian shirt type things (laughs) like the most ridiculous there was like little drawings of like tiff in her canyon kit and like botas and like the finnish flag and like oh man they were such great shirts and it just it was yeah you could tell that she bought one didn't you I wish that I had. I don't know where they were. I was I don't know where they were, but I wish that I'd been able to get one. I'm sure, I'm sure
1: if you ask nicely, she might be able to send you one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I look, I am gonna expose myself a bit here, but I'm terrified of Tiff.
1: No, she's actually she is she'd be probably quite intimidating if you don't know her, but she's actually one of the sweetest people. Like she's genuinely a really good person very kind
2: towards her 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 people like i think she only has a small group of her people but she's one of the most i think lizzie dighton described her as one of the most loyal friends that she has but you know she's a busy woman too so she doesn't really have time to have that you know as you get older as well you, you know when you're young you have that really extended network of people but only who you. has the
0: energy for that when you get older
2: uh, once and once you have a kid it's even less but
0: um, <laughs> i have like two friends it's you guys
2: so. <laughs>
0: and that's why you created the podcast <laughs> and that's why we have this, that's why i'm like really insistent this podcast exists no i i saw her like a bunch at the i obviously i didn't race the plan was to race but um but i have but uh, Lila kind of you know um, so I, I didn't get to race, but I did like, I was hovering around the race the whole weekend. And so I got to see her a lot and I was just like terrified to say, hi, <laughs> and, then, and then at a certain point it was like awkward. Cause I was like, okay, she's like, we've made eye contact multiple times. I still haven't said hi. So <laughs> now at this point it's just, but Tom's did chat with her a bunch, um, on the last day and, or on the, at the after party. And also got to chat with Botas, which was pretty cool because he's like pretty cool. I really want them to be friends. I just feel like that they would they would get along. (laughs) Latvian, (laughs) Finnish, (laughs) like the two cultures are like not super far from far off each other. But he's also quite busy. <laughs> and he yeah. was like really I there was there for like ten minutes at the finish line, him and I were just standing like probably three feet away from each other, waiting for Tom's to come in. Cause like obviously he had to shake Tom's hand when he won, and I was waiting to like, I don't know, see him win. And we were both just standing there, and I and I kept like thinking, like, should I say hi? Should I introduce myself? That'd be weird. I'd be like, Hello, I am the partner of the guy who's about to win. And and hello, and this is awkward and <laughs> can I interview you for the podcast? <laughs> oh, yeah, fun, okay, so it's
2: one to pencil in the calendar
0: yeah, absolutely i I rate this as as like as as someone who went to the event as a bystander, it was like a 10 out of 10 for me. Like it was really cool to just be around it. And also like the town was really pretty. And next year, 100%, I'm bringing a mountain bike because where the gravel race is, is like all through the forests. And it's all through this like really massive park that's full of trails and stuff. Mm. In the winter, they make it into Nordic skiing trails. Mm -hmm. But in the summer, it is like just everywhere you look is a single track like i think and they're like beautifully kept and it's really rolling it's in the in the hills in the forest and like as a as a race i think toms would rate it a 10 out of 10 um even though he's a little biased and as an event i would say like definitely one to go to and one for other events to aspire to but i think steamboat gravel because steamboat gravel is the same uh, organizers mm-hmm. there's like um there's a few of them right
2: under the same umbrella
0: yeah just look for the races that don't have any vowels
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah
0: anyway let's uh let's get to the episode so this episode of wheel talk is made possible by the generous support of our members actually i got to meet a couple of the members this weekend it was super cool i met a lifer Oh, it was wow. amazing uh, please come up and say hi to it. The, both times they were people were like oh i'm sorry to and i was like no no no! please like come up say hi you i owe you a handshake or a high five or a fist bump or something i just we love meeting people out in the in the wild so really really happy to meet people who listen to the podcast i it just like makes my heart glow um <laughs> monthly memberships just started at 11.99 us dollars or you can save 30 percent on annual annual payment. For more information, head on over to escapecollective.com slash join. And thank you so much to all the escape members who make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our lifetime subscribers who have subscribed to a lifetime's, work, lifetime's worth of escape collective goods. That's a lifetime of going to escapecollective.com to see what's going on in the world of bikes whether that's mountain bikes road bikes you know adventures we'll see we'll see what escape covers in the future but they've got a life's worth of time to read the site that is rodney mudford david fulliger mark Steenwalks watch watch Steen stein watches i'm so sorry uh, they gave me names to read, and I wish that I knew all of you personally. In fact, uh, if you see me out in the wild, please come give me a handshake, high five, whatever. Um, but I, my inability to pronounce names remains, and I apologize. Tyler Bronder and Caleb Hater. I apologize if I butchered your name, but I'm, I'm super grateful um, for you backing Escape for a lifetime. So thank you so much for your belief in us and thanks to all of our members and again I'm sorry so we had news over the weekend not great not a great series of events but the CIC Pyrenees race which is this is the second year that it's been on the calendar last year is right after the Tour de France Femme Mm -hmm x Zwift, but this year they moved it around a little bit. It's a 2.1 three-day stage race, and it got a ton of media coverage this weekend, not for the best reasons. The first stage, all three, well, all three stages were supposed to be live, which is pretty awesome for a 2.1 to have... Such good live coverage on GCN Plus, but the first stage was incredibly dangerous. There were multiple occasions where there were cars driving at the race from the opposite direction. There were cars parked all over the course. They were in Lords for uh, Lordes for the finish of the first stage, and it was super dangerous. Like at one point, there was like a bus on the road. It was. Yeah, and so after the race, there was a lot um, from the riders, but also from viewers about how dangerous the race was. And so for the second stage, they decided, the riders voted, and they decided to neutralize the stage up until the base of the final climb, the Hot and they raced up that climb. The first stage was won by Ashley Won Passio, and the second stage was won by Marta Cavalli. Just, like, think... goodness, (laughs) that she's, you know, getting back to that rider that we saw last year. Um, I, I hope, I think we all want to see her challenging the top riders and adding another team into the mix. So it was really cool to see her winning and the team did an amazing job, uh, working for her with Cecily there as well, but with how dangerous the race was, the UCI stepped in during the, for the third stage and canceled the third stage. Um, it was, Yeah, There was a lot going on. There was a vote the night before the third stage about whether or not the race should continue with the majority of the riders voting that it was too dangerous to continue and some of the smaller teams voting to still race because obviously the points are really big are a really big factor this season. So if you have a team like AG insurance, they really need the points to gain access to the world tour. Whereas like yumbo Visma is more concerned about not more concerned about rider safety, but has the luxury of being able to sit out races because they're pretty safe when it comes to the world tour. So there was that aspect of it. Um, it was split halfway with the team directors who voted nine to nine to continue the race or cancel it. And in the, at the end of the day, the UCI decided to put their foot down and cancel the race. There's a pretty pretty disappointing statement from the race organizers after the race. Um, one of the quotes floating around on Twitter was, what is happening is that the girls have requirements that are not in line with their level. Imagine They imagine that they're on the Tour de France and that the roads must all be closed, that everything must be locked. <sighs> I mean, I think that that, is not that big of a <laughs> requirement for a race. And Ashley mulan Passio actually had a really good statement where she said that races have, are under a lot of pressure these days to deliver pri- a big prize purse and live coverage. But what's happening is that things like rider safety is kind of getting pushed aside for these other things. And I think she has a good point there that rider safety needs to be the priority and, and I mean I I'm of the opinion that a prize purse is not really that big of a deal anymore at this point. But we've talked about that and I don't think we need to go into that in this conversation. It does seem like this race didn't put priority where it should have been with rider safety, and that's um yeah, that's a huge bummer. And I and what's interesting about this is that the race is when the race formed last year they were keen to gain entry into the world tour calendar and clearly with this just mess of a weekend um they're not ready for that
2: so yeah, in the end the the race was cancelled stage three didn't go ahead because in stage two the writers did protest during the stage several times i think they stopped and basically, they, they just raced up the final climb. It was my interpretation of the events. I didn't manage to watch it. I've only seen the videos of the chaos on course. But I will say uh, Adam Hansen from the CPA was very vocal when it was brought to his attention. Um, and I think there's quite a bit of discussion online about the CPA and their role in this. And, you know, there were some negative comments and positive comments. And how do you both feel about it?
1: sounds like the the CPA were, were trying to do the right thing and they were trying to really put the in the rights and the safety of the riders first. So same as you, Lauren, I don't know all of the details. I wasn't there on the ground and I haven't heard too much from all the way back here in Australia, but um oh, it's just it, it's the core of it. It was just unacceptable. Um, Even for a 2.1 race, that's still an international race. I'm not fully across the UCI rules. My assumption is, though, that any kind of level of international race, i.e. not a club-level race, has to have a certain level of rider safety and rules, and I, I think it would be quite unlikely that the open road scenario would be allowed to play out in that level. And it, just by watching that short video clip of um, Cosmos commentary, was which was absolutely hilarious, but it was also terrifying <laughs> because it wasn't just one vehicle. Sometimes you see that in men's cycling; like it does happen every now and again. Like um, at top level racing, they they really do so much work to make sure that that no cars come on, out on course. Every now and again, it does happen. It's uncommon though, but to see the level of what was going on within the last not even that many Ks. It just makes you wonder what happened throughout the whole race. (laughs) And, yeah, I've never seen anything like it. And the fact that they wanted to, one of the goals of the race was to put on a good level, difficult race in a beautiful area and have good top quality broadcast. I'm paraphrasing here, but that was the goal. And I think they've they've done exactly the opposite of what they are intending, and they've made themselves look silly, and they've made our sport look bad, um, not to mention all of the safety issues. So yeah, I think the CPA has tried to handle this quite well.
2: Do you know what I found interesting? I'm impressed with Adam Hansen. Yeah, I am too. But from you know the the letter that he wrote and published online, um, I don't know if you guys were surprised by this, but. I mean, overwhelmingly, most teams, I think it was 17 teams, were like, this is not cool. We're going to protest. We don't want to finish this race if it means um, the rest of our teammates are in danger. Of course, there's going to be those few teams that are chasing points and thinking we're going to just race no matter what, even if there's just three teams. I think that's what the organiser said. If there are just three teams still present, we'll continue the race um, because they're hunting these points, right? But then I, I found it interesting that was a, a nine-nine split with, um, or a half split between the team managers, but still half of the teams thought, no, let's just continue.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of telling, isn't it? Yeah. When- That's a good point, though, Lauren. Like, I think, like, you very, very rarely see a uh, uh, unification of athletes. And for someone that tried to start a union, And was Mm -hmm. part of one I someone said to me recently oh I I wish people could just like unify the writers better and you know they were implying that the TCA doesn't do a very good job with it and actually that was one of my jobs for like five years and I just wanted to I should have said something (laughs) in the moment but afterwards I, I I brewed on it for like days and weeks even I was like it is so fucking hard to unify people only really want to think about themselves Mm. and athletes are quite selfish and self-centered and i don't mean that in a really negative way it's just is what it is and they have to be yeah you have you have to to be be successful plus you do have a bit of fear there that there's 10 other riders that want your job so there's a there's a lot of fear there and um trying to find ways to communicate that you do have a bit more power than you think you do was quite difficult and So to see this many teams putting their hand up and being like, this is not good enough, like that tells you how bad it was.
0: And I mean, there is this really interesting thing going on with the points and how much the points come into play and like teams that need the points. And it's one of the negative reactions of having this relegation system, um, which was interesting to see because I think it's been, it it is like a weird dynamic that we're all kind of learning to – Learning, learning about this year. I have a surprise for you guys, okay. <laughs> actually. <laughs> um, I hadn't realized this until this morning, but I actually have a friend who is DSing at this race. So she's going to join us any second now and talk to us about how it was on the ground, because I think that it would be kind of cool to get some perspective from someone who is like actually in the race. And she's the DS for the Siniska team I believe is how it's pronounced maybe um cycling team it's like mostly American with a couple French riders and actually used to be the team of the the races um the race director for this event which is another interesting who she's also part of the the CPA women so there's a lot of crossover (laughs) (laughs) it's a messy it's a sticky situation and um so yeah but I think it would be cool to hear from from Jillian about what was actually going on on the ground. She said she's she'll be here in a second. So.
1: Cool, awesome.
0: <laughs> I just messaged her and I was like, "Hey, can you chat today?" She was like, "I can chat now." And I was like, "I'm sending. Uh, you can just pop in, pop into our podcast this. recording in real time." <laughs> I need to do like one of those audio. Um, one of those like vid- the the like sound bites of like a phone call. Mm-hmm. We're just gonna call up Jillian and then just do like the
1: ring ring. <laughs> yeah, and Jillian. That was oh, quite guess... good. That that was a good sound. I can't do that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> ring ring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Jillian Else. Hello. You Hi. You joined mid actual podcast recording because we're in the middle of <laughs> recording this week's episode. Wow. Like also, cool. so thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. And don't worry, it's not live. <laughs> That's good.
4: I can edit everything out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, we wanted to call you up because we were just talking about what happened at the race in the Pyrenees over the weekend, and we wanted to hear on the ground what it was like for you as a DS and how how you managed everything, and if it was really as bad as it seemed on the internet with the safety.
4: Yeah. So I guess one word to summarize everything is chaotic. <laughs> um, the I guess start at the beginning, like the first stage. Um, so it was neutralized 45K in. Um, okay. And they neutralized it because there was a crash 5K into the race and the medic wasn't in the bunch yet. So they had to neutralize it to wait for the medical car um so
0: for 35k there was no medical card yeah
2: is that sorry I'm unfamiliar with I've never been in a race where this has happened before have you Gracie
1: yeah it, it usually happens in France. <laughs> okay I, I've, been, I've been I've been stopped on the road for like 45 minutes like waiting because all okay. of the ambulances were busy and they couldn't have the race without something following so I, I assume they only had one then if this had happened so early on. We had two ambulances
4: and I believe that they were all with the race. It was just the race doctor wasn't with the race. And one of our riders was asking for the race doctor. Mm. Um, so they had to stop the race. But at that point, like most of the world tour riders were saying, this is really unsafe. Like <laughs> you guys need to do something about the safety. Um yeah, so they stopped the race, and then everybody continued to race. Um, and, yeah, the cars were a problem. <laughs> there was cars driving towards us. Um, they were stopping them at really bad spots. So riders couldn't, couldn't like, avoid cars. Um, and then pinch points were really bad. Um, caravan cars couldn't get through properly. Um, that was the first day. And then... The second day, I guess, after the first stage, all the directors and the riders were complaining. So they held a security meeting before the race started um, and the CPA was there. Um, and then they decided to neutralize the first 23K of the race, um, which to me isn't a solution at all. Because <laughs> um, they, they would have changed the outcome of the race as well, because the first GPM and the first sprint were cancelled on an already like super short race. So they did that and then I guess it would have been 10k or 15k after the restart, the riders stopped the race and neutralized it and then just stopped on the side of the road. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, in protest. And they were saying you either need to stop the race now or you need to neutralize us to the bottom of the, of the hot and the organization refused to do either of them. Um, so the riders neutralized themselves, but the issue was that the competitions were still on. So there was like riders trying to race for the competitions, um, riders saying, no, we're neutralized. <laughs> Um, and who, um,
2: Gillian, who were the main writers that were, were essentially the voice in the pack? Do you know?
4: Yeah, um, Audrey was one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had the CPA writer representative there from Stad Rushley. I can't remember her name. Um, and then a lot of the directors were really adamant that it was unsafe. Um, so they they were... They were definitely standing up for their riders. They knew that they were unhappy and really feeling like they couldn't race properly either because they were worried about coming around a corner and hitting a car. Mm. Um, Mm. So we can, they were sort of neutralized, sort of not. Um, And then we went through uh, Lord about 10K before the bottom of the Hoda And then it got really nasty again. Um, There were cars driving towards us. One girl crashed into a civilian car because they stopped them, like, on the side of a median. So the median was, like, maybe 200 meters long. And then the riders had nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. They needed the ambulance at this point. And the ambulance couldn't go up because the caravan cars were stopped in the median on one side. And then there's civilian cars stopped on the other side. So it was just just chaotic. Um, (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that was the end of the second stage, I guess. And then after the end of that, it was trying to figure out who was going to race the next day. Um, Three teams decided on saturday night not to start whether the race was going to go on or not so that was that was us israel and b pink and then sunday morning um i guess adam hansen the, sent the letter and the organization and the uci were like okay we we're, we're canceling <laughs> but so just three teams hmm. on
2: the saturday evening yeah that's
4: it. Yeah, just three. Um, interesting. interesting. Yeah, I think there was more than three who didn't want to start. But if the race was going to start, then they were being forced to begin. Um, mm. But then, of course, you guys saw that Yumbo that pulled out before they had announced the cancellation mm-hmm. on Sunday. Um,
0: yeah, Yumbo Visma. Yeah, yeah, they announced pretty early on Sunday that they, they weren't going to race...
4: Hmm. regardless yeah yeah so i really don't think the organization would have canceled it unless the riders union and the uci had stepped in and said no so uh-huh. that's a little telling <laughs>
0: <laughs> how are you feeling now like now that the race is done how are how are your riders are they shaken up or are they are they all right
4: um <clears throat> I'd say varying degrees. Um, there was a few of them that were really, really scared um, and really unhappy, and yeah, I think they just lost trust in the organization because they weren't, they mm-hmm. weren't securing roads and they weren't listening to anybody.
0: And I think that this is like um, in in light of the cancellation of the Lotto Belgium tour that just happened, and obviously we have. Friend of the podcast, um, Matilda, Matilda Reynolds, was supposed to race that race, like came all the way over to with that as one of her targets, and it was canceled last minute, like the week before the race happened, and then you have this situation, and it's just, we talked last week about the importance of these smaller races, but you're coming over here with a U.S. based team that this would have been like a huge deal for you to, for you guys Mm -hmm. to be able to compete in a race like this. So it's such a disappointing situation when the race can't properly put on a race (laughs) and you have people who come all the way from Australia and the U S just to be able to compete in Europe. And then this happens and it's, it's really unacceptable. And I mean, like Gracie said, it's, it's a 2.1. So it, should have been better organized from someone who was on a smaller us team that came over to europe hoping to like get my big break seeing something like this is just such a disappoint disappointment
4: women's cycling has progressed so far (laughs) since even you and i retired um Mm -hmm. and like for them to not the not get the basic things right is just really disappointing and for them to say you should continue to race to support women's cycling um is just like that's insane to me (laughs) they're taking they're taking women's cycling like two steps back right they're not Mm -hmm. they're not helping Mm -hmm. to progress it
1: yeah it kind of sounds like like they're putting that guilt yeah it just sounded like they were putting it back on you guys like you know if if you really care or you really think that this is important and this race is important to support and you guys want to be part of pro cycling in europe then you have to keep racing and and uh, yeah i think that we see that kind of mentality so much like you should just be grateful that you have a race at all and Mm -hmm. um it's just frustrating you can't (laughs) number one you don't want to die like we're doing this for fun and number two you can't live off you know those um you can't live off gratitude like either you can't live off some of these meagre offerings. And uh, I don't know, I think that some people are just, yeah, they get probably too caught up in all of the foot stamping around the broadcast stuff, but that, that was really the argument for the big races, not for everybody else. So it's like Yeah. frustrating.
4: Yeah. yeah and, and we're trying to make it professional. And I think, you guys said on the last podcast like learning from the mistakes that the men's peloton has made and like safety is a basic working condition so if we want to make it professional like that should be that should be the top priority i think um, and the
0: safest races are still dangerous yeah like it could be it could be the safest race ever on like on paper but a bike race is still a bike race and you're still hurtling down a paved road in like a tiny pair of shorts oh yeah know? yeah it's like you you have to I control think, yeah, what you can control and
2: this calculated risk that we all took or, or that is a taking when you are racing but like you were saying this is just a general condition of hosting a race um, is is safety has to be number one. And um, I'd be ac- actually interested to, I don't know enough about organizing a race, um, but it would be curious to speak with someone like Carly who organized the Under and how many hours and months go into that preparation and the discussions that I had.
0: Yeah, I would love to get Carly on to talk about that because I think that that's something that we as fans you know we don't really know um what's going on or as bystanders (laughs) we don't know what goes on to putting goes into putting on a race and it's a lot yeah there's a that's why gravel is so big they don't have closed roads you just have to (laughs) just have to be safe out there but road racing is not the same (laughs) assume that a car
4: is hurtling towards you on a descent in gravel
0: oh yeah exactly (laughs) um well, Jill, thank you so much for taking the time. I love your hair. It looks oh, very short and summery. Thanks. And I love it. Um, you can stick around for the whole episode if you want, but you can also leave if you, if you want.
4: <laughs> I mean, I would stick around, but I need to go drive an hour away to drop a van and then take a taxi back to my airport you, hotel.
0: <laughs> you have to go do DS things.
4: Yeah, the joys of DSing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a lot more than just uh, like making race, race plans.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: a lot of driving. Lots of
4: driving. <laughs> yeah, but thanks for having well, me. Well,
0: thank you so much.
4: Yeah, thanks. talk later.
0: I love you. Thank you love you too. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.
1: Well, that was great.
0: Yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed that spur of the moment decision.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was awesome <laughs> to get like the real fly on the wall thing. What really happened? Yeah.
0: I did I wish that I thought of it sooner but hey, that's fine. We we just got to keep you two on your toes. That's part of my part of the fun <laughs> of being the host of this podcast. I think we've we've talked enough about that and that situation and, and said our piece, so uh, should we move on? We've got one more bit of kind of breaking news, a little bit. Um, and then we'll answer as many questions as we can get to. We've we've talked about this longer than I anticipated, so we might not get to that many, but that's okay. So, breaking-ish news from us is that Chloe Hosking and a couple of her were-to-be teammates on the b Hotels team are actually suing the the Pino brothers for compensation over the team mess that we talked about in December. And uh, Matt actually chatted with Chloe, so I'm going to throw in their audio here, so... Y'all can hear it straight from the source.
3: A bunch of us are suing the Pinot Brothers <laughs> for so. compensation for um, yeah the basically signing us and then the team collapsing. Yeah. Um, so that's been commenced uh, with the help of a CPA lawyer um, in France. Uh, we had our first hearing a couple of weeks ago and they're fighting it. So they're trying to argue that they didn't, um, I don't know what they're trying to argue, to be honest. <laughs> um, and so because they're arguing it, we then go to trial. And I think that starts in uh, September or October. Um, so it was really important to me that I had one of the writers reach out to me recently and she asked um uh, what do you think the chances of success are? And I said, I honestly don't know, but I just know that, you know, they really fucked me over and I'm not going to let them just get away with it. Even if we don't lose, they need to know that it wasn't acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, proceeding with that um, legal action, and there's a number of us trying to get compensation. So, um, yeah, there's that going on.
2: she's She's working at a law firm now right
0: yeah yeah she's a paralegal and she was in finland i saw that lauren your your wi-fi
2: i know hold on i'm gonna
1: try and move
0: yeah she was on one of her hosking bikes in finland
1: yeah they look pretty cool actually
0: are back and we're gonna answer some of the questions that we didn't get time for last time. One of the questions deals from Elizabeth is about whether or not the prominence of women's racing will trickle down to bikes and components that are better designed for females um, in the sense of frame geometry as well as components like brakes that fit smaller hands. We had, for example, Guy riolini was saying that she couldn't reach her brakes. I'm well known for giving Anami Van Vluten a hard time. Um, she's also a relatively small rider who it's, it's not easy to find a bike and components that fit. So this is a great question, but I think for us, we are not, we're not tech savvy people. So I will forward this question over to the geek warning podcast and see if they can answer it. And if they can, I will get an audio clip from them and I will throw it into this podcast. So I think we'll get that answered for you, but yeah. On this, We're not, like,
2: I'm not. This is a question for for the industry, because um, just on a basic level with general bicycles, I'm just going to use a really small example. Yesterday, I did a learn to ride course with some expats here in Bruges, in Belgium, and you know, I planned everything, and I just assumed that the bike hire store would have bikes that fit normal size women. I'm a very tall woman, woman, so I can jump on pretty much anything. And when I went to the store, it was just like, it was unbelievable how few bikes they had that could fit these women. And for the purpose of teaching people how to ride bikes, you actually need to, you know, slam the, the saddle all the way down um, to do these exercises. And it was just a nightmare. I had to put like four women on children's bikes. And it was just really disappointing. And I also find, like, with the, the bike share systems, um, things just aren't designed for women. And it's infuriating. I remember being teammates with Corinne, and she had a really hard time
0: getting a bike. And Katie Hall, actually. The two of them are both pretty small. I'm like you, Lauren. I don't have the problem. So,
2: And in the words of Stacy Sims, women are not small men, so... No, she's yeah. awesome. I tried like
0: to get her on the podcast, but she is really hard to
1: pin to get down. Like, well, oh <laughs> she's she's busy. <laughs> to be fair, there's plenty of small dudes around as well. Plus, like everyone's different; everyone has different like female lengths and torso lengths and stuff. So, like, just having a little bit more of a variety of genderless equipment would be
0: mm. nice. You know, I feel like, look, I am biased because obviously my husband rides for them, but I feel like if there's any team that's going to try to change this, it's going to be Trek Segafredo because they have Guy Riolini on the team who is like a phenomenal talent and would benefit from a bike that fits. And they already had to make a special frame for Don Hul, who's like six foot seven or something bonkers. Uh, so they had to make him a special bike. So I wonder if Trek is working on something for Gaia and they have SRAM as a major sponsor. So Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if we actually do see something. You know what? I'm going to take a stop at this question. I, I'm not going to, I mean, like I'll, I'll still send it over to geek warning and see what they have to say, but I feel like, yes, I feel like we are going to see, because there, there are a lot more women getting into cycling and there are a lot more brands that are interested in what the women want. I think that that is something that we can confidently say. They're like brands like SRAM and Trek and Canyon are like really keen to make sure that their equipment fits women. And I think that I think that those three brands are big enough in themselves that they'll, they'll get it done. I think it'll happen. I, I couldn't give you a timeline for it, but I do think that there is a chance that it will trickle down. At least I really hope so. And not just road, like we still have like the mountain biking side and, and the gravel side There's also big spaces in the tech world that I think are pushing, uh, there are riders pushing for change in this. I feel confident in that answer. <laughs>
1: Confident that it will happen, frustrated that it hasn't happened already. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. Denise asks about team organization structure and hierarchy. How do teams organize their riders getting from home base to the race and what thought is put into that? Are there any standard protocols for this um and has this taken is this taken more seriously in the men's peloton following along on social media it seems like several riders from the world tour teams and not so top world tour teams had a had to tackle a nine hour drive uh back from a hard day of racing which apart from being rubbish on your recovery can also be quite dangerous when you're tired this is a long question i think that we can get to that chunk of it first there's definitely like I remember when I was racing on a UCI team and we were we were racing the Belgian Classics, they just put you up in like a host in a house. They just like rent a house and you just kind of live in Belgium for a block of the classics, but I think it has changed a lot since then. Like a lot of the girls that live in Europe, I mean all of the world tour girls basically have to live in Europe full time for the season whether you're from Australia or the US, it's You have a home base. A lot of them choose places like Girona where there's a really big English speaking community and a lot of comforts that you'd be able to find back home. There's a lot of like Aussie cafes in Girona, for example. And it's really easy to get in and out of a place like Girona or Nice. There's a airport right there that flies to most of the major European cities and pretty much all the races are relatively close to an airport, except for, like, some of the Belgian classics are a little bit harder to get to, but... And Drenta is a nightmare. (laughs) But, but like, if you live in Girona, there's flights from the Girona airport, which is, like, 20 minutes from downtown Girona. There's flights from, from there to... Like Charlois in Belgium, close to Brussels, and that's pretty close to the races. So it's really easy to actually get to the races and stuff. And Barcelona is only a 45-minute train ride away. So yeah, I think like there's a reason we see so many pros in Girona. It's a really, really easy place to get in and out of when it comes to traveling from races. I think it's really rare that we see riders having to drive nine hours home from a race Although I know that, like some sometimes, like Tom's hops a ride on the team bus home from Milan San Remo because it's actually faster to get home on the bus than it is to to fly, and that that'll happen every once in a while. But I don't. It wouldn't be the riders who are driving nine hours after a race. It would be staff.
2: And it's generally it's someone within these big teams that's organizing everyone's travel. So, you know, they'll they'll often consult with the rider. What's the easiest airport or train station for for you to travel from what would you like to do um that's generally how it used to happen when when I was racing um or I would send sometimes details of like appropriate flights not the ones at like 6 45 a.m which meant you had to get up sometimes at some stupid hour which to be fair just doesn't help with preparation before a race there's just absolutely no sense in that. And I don't think at the level that I can speak from the women's side, the level that the women's racing is now that riders, you know, just getting the day before the race and having taken, um, a super early flight or a very late flight, something like that. So it's, yeah, there's a logistics person who organizes everything. I think that's pretty much the crux of the question right
0: and it totally depends on teams but i know like for sc works and trucks segafredo which are granted two of the top teams but like for those two teams and i imagine for some of the other teams the logistics person will send the rider like okay you have these three flight options and the rider gets to choose and that's definitely a new development um like i think that that's as the teams have more funding they're able to do that and able to have a logistics person on staff even because like when i was racing it was my ds who was having to buy all the flights and stuff and i imagine like jillian is in charge of like getting all the flights for <laughs> her team and stuff, um, as it's a smaller team. But it's it definitely it's definitely something that's developing um, in favor of riders having like the most the the smallest amount of travel and also the most comfortable. If it's if it's easier to drive nine hours from a race, like it sometimes it's just easier to do that.
1: It's less usual, and like probably in men's world tour. Their budgets are so much higher across the board at the world tour level. Like it's pretty standard that this is across all teams within women's cycling. As we've talked about, all world tour, all women's world tour teams are not created equally. So I'd say the the top eight to ten teams are super organized, and this is what we what we've what Abby and Lauren have just described would be pretty common practice. And then maybe that other handful of teams that are world tour teams that maybe shouldn't be, they're the ones that are doing, you know, some crappier travel days, often driving and not letting their riders fly all, the, all of the time. So, yeah, it's not as common anymore and it's way better than it used to be, but it wouldn't be across the board that the the pro women always have a good intensive travel <laughs>
0: There's definitely some some real bad travel out there. That's mm. for sure.
1: <laughs> We've um, all got our terrible travel stories. <laughs> oh, man.
0: I will, I'll spare my story about trying to get to uh, the Tour of San Juan <laughs> one year. <laughs> Who from the team gets to go to altitude camps and at whose expenses are those training camps? Mm. Um, is the rider tasked with being on a specific form at the specific time or can they take care of this on their own? Is there any financial support for from the team? Also, is teamwork mainly limited to a race? How does this happen on the day-to-day? Um, so the teams that are doing altitude camp, like Trek is at the moment in Lavinia, or they just ended an altitude camp in Lavinia with their possible tour squad and that's fully on the team that's basically like they take care of it like a race situation the race the team will make like uh, organize all the travel and then also organize lodging and meals and all of that stuff um There's like a Swanee there that does massages every day. So it's very much basically like handled like a race situation. And that's like a pretty new development in women's cycling that the teams are able to do that. And that's definitely not all the teams. Uh, There are definitely smaller teams where the girls organize their own altitude camps. And a lot of the times they'll find hotels in places like Lavinio, but also like Andorra, for example, where they have Uh, they're like cycling friendly hotels and they'll give the riders a pretty good discount to be able to stay there. There's one like right up the street from me in Andorra. And I just saw a bunch of the, the Movistar girls training there and they are not on an organized altitude camp. They're organizing it themselves. And then the team does, usually a team will um, reimburse, but also sometimes it's the nations that reimburse like for Tom's if he does a training camp the Latvian Olympic Committee will sometimes reimburse him a little bit for the for altitude training camp if it's an Olympic year for example so i think like some nations support their riders in training camps and and some teams will reimburse at least partially um but yeah the, it really depends on the team and also on the rider cuz i think like if you were to if Anemiek van Vleuten is going to go to altitude with Leona Lippert, then Movistar is probably pretty keen to make that happen. Um, yeah, but it, it's it's definitely an interesting question, so thank you so much for putting this forward. Teamwork does always happen on the race, on the like limited-to-race days. You don't see much... On a non-race day, r- riders like to race each other. Te- teammates race each
1: other. <laughs> sometimes for fun, sometimes not for fun.
0: <laughs> there's no teamwork on, on non-race days.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's such a weird sport like that. Like, there's there's so many weird things about cycling. But, um, yeah, like, it is a team sport, as pretty much every listener knows, but yeah not not a lot of team stuff happens outside of racing except for maybe a tr- team training camp once or twice a year depending on your team um and like it's it's weird i know some triathletes that that's a super individual sport yet in Australia at least, you have to be training in a squad environment pretty much every day if you want to be considered for Worlds or Olympic kind of level racing. And it blows my mind that they're racing as individuals and have to train as a group, and we're racing as a team and we we just train as individuals. So not that there's, like, anything wrong with either scenario per se, like there's the certainly pros and cons for both, but, like, Yeah. I don't know about you guys. I like training alone.
0: (laughs) I love training alone. I used to refuse. Taylor Wiles would ask me all the time and I used to just every single day I'd be like, nope, nope, nope. (laughs) I always just ride by myself. No, I think one of my favorite things about cycling is actually like, like, you have hotbeds like Girona, where there's like a ton of pros, and a lot of the pros on different teams train together. Like you'll see a ride with like six different riders, all on different World Tour teams, all training together. And I think it's just really cool. I think it's cool that cycling has that—that that uh-huh. it's not—it's a team sport in that it's raced as a team, but that there's not so much structure that you can be friends with riders that you're usually competing against and train with them on a daily basis. There's no secrets when it comes to form and stuff. And, um, I think it's part of what makes the sport really fun. And especially on the women's side, like the, you see riders who win races and like the entire Peloton celebrates (laughs) and it's cause everybody has, times when you overlap with other people whether on a team or like where you're living at the time Mm. and i just think it's really cool
2: it's it would be get almost too claustrophobic like like you're saying abby so many of the pros live in girona particularly the female pros and i i guess for some teams almost the whole team is living there um Mm. and i don't know what it's like now but you have your cliques and your friendship groups just like you would do in a normal um day-to-day or working life sort of situation so you're not always necessarily going out for for drinks with your colleagues from work for example (laughs) because you have your life outside of of work and that's kind of what it's like but of course there are some really special friendships and bonds that are made um within a team and you'll sometimes still see teammates doing everything together um I think there's a little bit of that with Flotra Mackay and Leanna Lippert but I don't think they live in the same area do they
0: there's definitely that in Jayco Alula like mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll see Jaco Alula riders hanging out a ton outside of outside of races and like they have dinners together and stuff like that and it's really cool to see yeah. do you
4: think
2: it's because it's the Aussie contingent just a lot of them are new riders as well that have just moved to Europe and I think it's quite a nice safety bubble in a sense
1: Yeah, I'd say a lot of it's like the Aussie connection. You get a bit of homesick. Plus some of them Mm. are literal besties like Alex Manley and Georgia Baker. (laughs) They've got a shared Instagram page, which is like super cute. I love it.
0: Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's cool. I mean, it, it, you kind of see some of the sim, some similar things on the men's side like one of Tom's biggest training I feel like I've mentioned him a lot this episode. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um biggest training buddies is Joey Roscoff and they used to be they still are on on rival teams, but they love to ride together. I think it's and it's so it's not just a women's cycling thing like it trans, transfers over to the men's side. I I think it's one of the cooler aspects of the sport for sure that we don't, that it's not. And also like, look, I've been with my team in the same house for six weeks and it was five weeks too long. And like, <laughs> we couldn't, yeah. we weren't even racing well together at the end of that because everyone was so sick of each other. So it's actually better for the riders not to, I think maybe cause it's like you said, Gracie, it is such an individual training thing that like when you put everyone together for a really long period of time and it you have to eat together and like ride together and do your rest days together and it just is so overwhelming that it would it would actually be bad if we all like were forced to train together with your teammates every day. Oh man.
1: Yeah. I agree.
0: <laughs> Given me like the I'm like gagging just thinking about it. <laughs> i had to live with the rally team for (laughs) i love them like best one of some of my best friends came from that team i still don't want to live with them for more than a week 10 days that was the (laughs) maximum (laughs) then you start like getting infighting like people people start to turn on each other it's nasty what do you think one more question and then we'll call it an episode uh this one's quick we'll answer this one super quick so tom asks how does the parkour slash race routes and terrain affect who succeeds in the peloton having more alpine style climbs has started to open things up for climbers like riolini are there other styles of cyclists who would benefit from other parkourses and r- that are rare in current races
1: um i think in women's cycling historically you'd, you have to be an all-rounder to be generally successful but i think we're seeing in the last five years um more uh, opportunity to be a specialist whether you're a top climber or a top sprinter or even a, a, a really good all-rounder a ruler as we like to call them um but i don't know i feel like it's a complicated question too you could go into the physiology of it which abby was kind of getting at you know if you are a fast twitch rider sprinting is good if you're on a flat course and the heelier it is the harder it is. So some sprinters prefer it a little bit harder because then they, they can take their advantage over those pure sprinters. And then of course, you've got those massive mountains, which in women's cycling at the moment, we just don't quite have the depth in our top, top climbers. So I think that there's a good amount, in my opinion, at the moment within the Giro, the tour, and maybe a couple of other races. I don't think we need any we don't need too much more massive mountainous days yet. We just don't have the depth of competition. So it does. it's just a little bit boring and no disrespect to our top climbers currently like Van Vluten, Vollering and Raelini. Um It'll be cool to see a couple more names popping up in the next few years and we can see a bit more of that kind of racing in the future. But right now I think that... I don't know. Like I'm definitely biased. I love the spring classics, but it's also in like they're fun races because so many people could potentially win them and that kind of style of racing in the spring, but also throughout the tours in the summer, I think just lends itself to interesting, um, exciting racing. So I think for me, the, the conversation isn't too relevant at the moment in women's cycling in a, a yearly calendar, but I think that um, it's a it's a really good question when it comes to championship events like World Championships and Olympics. Uh, sometimes you just feel like you've just got this long run of World Championships year after year that are just only suiting a handful of people, like a lot of climbing. Yep. Um, same with Olympic Games too. Like when are we going to have a Sprinters' Olympics? Like it's kind of, you know, what Next is fair? Year, crazy. Yeah, well, hopefully. You never know though. Like they... Sometimes you see a course and then they they change it. Yeah, and they said that Tokyo Mm. was going to be like a punchy race. So it's kind of like things change right quite close to big events. So it's, I think that sometimes is tough because some um, athletes only have five or 10 years as a career, which is a good amount of time. But sometimes that means you only get to go to one or two Olympic Games if you're lucky. And um, sometimes, that career span falls over games that don't suit you at all and that doesn't mean to say that you didn't deserve to go as a top athlete and that's tough. So it's not a, a, a um, problem that I have a particularly good solution for, but that's just something I wanted to raise in that sometimes our best athletes um, just don't get the opportunity sometimes to get the results that they probably could be capable of. And that does come down to course.
0: Damn, Grace, good aunt Grace. answer. Damn, Gracie, good answer. <laughs> yeah. That was a great answer. All right. I think that's the perfect perfect place to wrap it up. We're actually not going to do what we're obsessed with this week, mostly because Lauren needs to go.
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed, obsessed with
0: definitely. Lauren. <laughs> I'm always obsessed with Lauren. One, obsessed Two with people. Both of you. Oh, and Hannes. Hannes is still
2: obsessed with me.
0: <laughs> and, and Harry. Harry, too. Four. <laughs> <laughs> that's four. Or like, three and a half (laughs) um but we will we'll do what we're obsessed with next week and thank you so much to everyone for listening thanks to you two for another great episode and yeah we've got we're tour de swiss coming up so we'll talk about that in the next episode